You're listening to Halfway There, episode number 231, Sarah Simmons and Setting the Captives Free. Let them go. Welcome to Halfway There. This is the show where we have honest conversations with ordinary Christians about today's Christian experience. I'm your host, Eric Nevins. Thank you so much for being here. I'm so glad that you've downloaded. I know that we have an amazing conversation for you today that uh, will uh, definitely encourage you and get you um, get you going. So uh, this is going to be great. If you haven't, by the way, had a chance to go over to halfwaythairepodcast.com. There's a little Patreon button. We would appreciate your support. Uh, you can just give a small amount, get access to new episodes free or early, and also you can get some swag uh, at certain levels. Just go check those out, and we'd love to have your support in that way. Okay, our guest today, she is the executive director of Her Future Coalition, an international charity fighting human trafficking and other severe gender violence uh, with shelter education and employment. That's cool. She's been doing this a while. She's going to tell us all about it. Our guest is Sarah S- Simmons. Sarah, welcome to Halfway There. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. I am glad uh, to make the acquaintance and to have you just kind of hear your story. Tell us, uh, you told me a minute ago you're in Florida, but tell us a little bit about your story or your kind of where you are and what God has you doing right now. Okay, so I'm in St. Augustine, Florida, um, but our charity works in India and Nepal. And so um, prior to COVID, uh, I was going over there a couple times a year for about a month. And we have a wonderful staff of six um, in Kolkata who are running things very ably um, while I'm here. And like you said in the introduction, our focus is on shelter, education, vocational training, and all the tools that we can offer to survivors and very high-risk girls to help them to become and remain slavery-proof. So not just Mm. that they're out of the situation, but that some of those root causes are also being addressed and they're not you know, falling back into other forms of exploitation, which sadly is a, a real serious problem. Yeah. I mean, that's a term, like I'd never heard it before, but it really resonates, right? Slavery proof, like, wow, you know, that that's even something we have to worry about today. I'm sure you hear that a lot. People, you know, in the United States, we think of slavery as something past, but it's not necessarily. It's not. And I feel like um, when I first got involved in the work, what was devastating to discover um, because there were many levels of devastating stuff to discover, but sure. one part that really, really hurt me was to see that a lot of girls were being rescued and um, because they weren't having the root causes addressed, they were being sent home without, you know, giving them tools for survival. And so they were still vulnerable. The things that made them vulnerable were still existing poverty, the low status of mm. women, you know, parents who, who were desperate or, or who, communities where trafficking had been normalized and just not knowing about laws, not knowing about human rights, their rights. Um, so then, and then on top of that, they're feeling, you know, very, very broken, um, very stigmatized, possibly rejected by their families or blamed for what was done to them. And they might even have a mother's sisters or children um, still back in the red light area. So with all those factors, you know, pulling them down and pulling them back, it's really a, a big problem of recidivism and people mm-hmm. who, you know, sort of thought they were free, but they were only, 
you know, free externally, the internal issues were still going on until those were addressed, they're not slavery proof. So I consider slavery proofing is, um, you know, helping someone to recover from their trauma, which is first and foremost, giving them some tools for survival through education and vocational yeah. training, teaching them and helping them understand their human rights and laws. So they know that, you know, this is illegal. It's not something that can just be done to me. And I have no, I have no recourse. Um, and, and giving them long-term support because it's not, it's not a quick journey. And I, I think a lot of people would, you know, wish that we could just drop in and offer a workshop and we gave 10,000 mm. people a workshop. We're done. It's not like that. It, you know, like many things, it, it, it's really a long-term commitment. You got to walk alongside people for years or trafficked at, you know, 11, rescued at oh, 13. Yeah. You'd better plan on like a 10 year walk with them at least so that they can grow up and recover from this horrific trauma and get those tools. Um, so it's kind of a long-term intensive thing, but when you do it, the great news is it works. Um, you see, you know, interventions being very effective, especially when you're working with young people, with children, they're incredibly resilient. Mm. Um, we've gotten to see just so many miraculous turnarounds and recoveries and people who not only um, are themselves healed and healing, but are becoming very strong activists and rescuing others and, and really um, speaking and advocating and, and changing the equation. Yeah, I love that. Okay, so that's obviously a big topic. And there's probably a lot to, to human trafficking. And I'm sure there's a story about how you got into that. So we're, we're gonna we're gonna talk about that. But I want to go back a little further first and talk about uh, kind of your, your own journey, because that's, that's what we're interested in. Um, what so like where did you you told me you grew up in Michigan right so was it did you grow up in it's not the Bible Belt but it's it's was it a Christian family or was it what was it like it wasn't a Christian family um and um but uh, we grew up we grew up Unitarian which is you know kind of seeing seeing God and the love of God in all faiths um yeah. and when I was um thirteen I joined a, a Baptist church and. Um, really was drawn to, you know, specifically the Christian faith. And um, that has been such a, a deep and abiding support in my own personal life. Mm. Um, and it's gone through many evolutions, I guess, like everybody's faith, sure. because that church was, you know, very um, like sort of legalistic and, um, and strict, but there was a lot of, there was a lot of love and support too. And um and then I, you know, as I grew up, my own, I guess, personal understanding and faith, faith deepened. And definitely through this work, it's deepened a lot more because um, I've had the, you know, I've really come face to face, face to face with more suffering than I could ever have imagined before, um, mm. but also more healing and more miracles. Um, so it's been it's added a lot to my own um, faith journey for sure. Yeah, I bet it has. So what drew you, you said something drew you when you were 13 to the, to the Christian faith. What was that? I, I just love the teachings of Jesus and mm. um, that just resonated so deeply for me and especially um, his teachings of love and of caring for the most vulnerable yeah, you know, in the world as a way of showing our love. And I think that, um, you know, throughout the 
centuries of Christianity. We've gotten sidetracked many times um, in showing our love for God in other ways, like, you know, building giant, beautiful buildings or um, yeah, judging others. <laughs> um, and, you know, all, ki- all kinds of like, crazy kind of misdirects. And, um, and for me and my faith journey, it, it just always comes back to, you know, the, ver- the words of Christ, um, the, the love of Christ, the, the forgiveness, the inclusive and embracing aspects and nature of Jesus Christ is what drew, drew me to Christianity and continues to, um, continues to flood my soul with joy. Yeah. Yeah. How'd you end up at the Baptist church? <laughs> It was, and it wasn't just the Baptist church. It was, it was really, it was really Baptist. Um, really? Yeah. That, I mean, I get it. I mean, I think we've all kind of run into some, some, uh, you mentioned it was kind of legalistic and we, I think we all have some of those we, we run into at some point, but how'd you end up there? I, I think, you know, some friends were like, oh, let's go to this Bible study. Yeah. And, and, um, and like I say, you know, not to knock it because the, the people there were just so good to me and, and, um, really just gave me so much support when I was growing up. Although some of them later kind of also looked back and were like, Oh my gosh, we were maybe thinking about the wrong things. Um, cause it was like the, it was like the church from, from the movie. Um, not, not flash dance. What's the one where the, the town doesn't allow any dancing and then the kids. Oh <laughs> yeah. <talking> about. <laughs> Yeah, I know which one you're talking about. I, you know what? That's that was a little before I was allowed to watch movies, so that's not, <laughs> not quite. Well, it was kind of like that. It was, you know, very strict about no dancing and no Hollywood movies and and stuff like that. Um, but did that shape was, you in any way? Start. Did, no, it is a short, and that's totally great. Like, I'm just curious. I'm curious about your your journey because that's you know that, that's interesting. I, I want to hear all about kind of how those things happen. So was that like, did that, what did that embed in you? And were there things that you maybe either had to let go of or had to like, that you look at, at now and go, I'm so glad I got that then. Mm. Well, I think, you know, at the end of the day, um, the people there were, you know, were deeply committed. And, um, you know, whilst I don't necessarily agree with the the rules and, you know, judgments and regulations, it's no longer part of my own faith, they were walking with God in the best way they knew how. And, um, and so was I at that young age. And then as I got older and my faith deepened and, you know, I matured as a, as a person as well. Um, I, my own faith journey has led me, you know, away from rules and certainly away from judging anyone else's behavior and really, you know, focusing on, on am I or how I can best, um, show my love for Christ, which, is through, you know, he's really clear on this, um, caring for, for others and especially to love and care for the poor. Um, and so to whatever extent I can do that, you know, that's, that is where my faith journey is at today. Did you have a moment of like giving your life to Christ and it's okay if not, but I'm just curious if, if you did. I did have that moment, um, at, uh, Bible camp when I was about 13. Oh yeah. I love Bible camps. You know, I worked at a Bible camp in, um, I don't know, like my junior year sometime in there, you know, and it was, and it's easy to, especially then, you know, when you're young and know everything, it was very easy to kind of align that. Right. But I look at it now and I hear these stories and I think how, how so many people 
it really does impact their life. Like they, they actually, they, maybe they hear the gospel for the first time or they really get it for the first time. Right. Uh, and I love that. It's interesting between that and like evangelistic crusades, things that I would have thought like, I don't know, you know, does that really do anything? So many people come to Christ through that. It's really awesome. Yeah. And I think God is speaking in those places and Mm -hmm. coming together in community is really important too. And I think that, you know, is an opportunity to do that as well. Yeah. I love that. Okay. So you had that, um, that kind of experience and then you were, so you were growing and you, you know, what, what, where did your faith kind of go from there? And then, um, you know, I assume eventually we'll get to kind of where this intersects with your mission today. Mm-hmm. Well, then, um, you know, because I was going to a Baptist church and, and I ended up going um, for one year to Bob Jones University. Okay. In Carolina, which, if we're being honest, and why wouldn't we be? Um, yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was not a good fit for me. And it was a bit of a, it was a bit of a dark time in my spiritual path. Because, um, you know, it was at that time, and I don't know if it's true, the case anymore, um, but at that time, it was, it was pretty legalistic. And um, I, w- I, I just was like, this isn't, I don't, I, I didn't feel. Um, yeah. You God's didn't. Love or this God speaking or a sense of warm community and embracing uh, community there. Um, it felt really wrong and for me and so you know I left and then I was like oh gosh <sighs> I didn't you know lose my faith um but I I just wasn't as as committed to it for a while because I was just yeah that was just difficult it kind of um, it then, could... you know as, as I got older and I had my kids and I wanted to take them to church and we found a wonderful church um which was the um United Church of Christ and um there, you know, just was able to, to reconnect with everything I loved, mm-hmm. not only about Christianity, but about, um, sharing, you know, sharing it in community with others. Yeah. I love that. And, so so yeah, that whole, great. and then, um, as I was starting the charity, which was, you know, 16 years ago, now that we launched it, I did get a lot of support, um, from my church and from, and I don't know if I would have been able to do it without them. So that was really, that was really nice too. And that was up in Cape Cod, Massachusetts. Oh, gotcha. How long did you live in Massachusetts? For about 12 years. Okay. And then um, my husband was finding it super dark and gray and every year it seemed darker and grayer and <laughs> it was, you know, affecting him and his joy of life. So we, we moved down to Florida gotcha. about 10 years ago. Yeah. Well, the winters there are kind of, they're kind of tough, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, it's bleak. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> wow. I love Boston, although the Red Sox beat my Cardinals in the uh, World Series twice, and that's unfortunate. So, still, still kind of mad about it. Um, but, but the uh, um, cool, so interesting. I'm, I'm really interested in that. Yeah. So, you know, Bob Jones. I'm not, we don't have to talk about them, uh, but yeah, there definitely tends to be kind of on that. Did you know Bob Jones one time told Billy Graham that he would be amount to nothing? Bob. So you have that in, with, yeah, like in common with Billy Graham. He he also went to Bob Jones. Before he went to Wheaton. So interesting little fact there. Uh, but that that can have kind of a, it sounds like it had sort of a, maybe chilling is not the right word, but sort of a stagnating effect on your faith. Is that, is that yeah, right? Stagnating is exactly the right word. Because um, I was, you know, so excited to go there and I felt really called to do that. And mm. then, and that just wasn't right. And it wasn't a fit. Um, 
you know, but it was still right. It was in the tapestry of my life. It was a yeah. piece of it. And I, I learned some cool things. And, um, and one of the things that I learned was that that particular approach to Christianity was not for me. Not for you. Right. You were going to go find, find something else. That's good. Yeah. Okay. So it stagnated your faith a little bit. Um, all right. And then you, it sounds like you did find a, a church community. Was there, was there anything that stood out to you as far as just like learning and kind of making your faith your own after that, that, that was kind of your, you know, that stands out to you as a moment that, that you felt like God was kind of nudging you along the way here. Hmm. That's a really good question. Well, I definitely felt, you know, as I, as I've said, expressing my love of God through, through service is, you know, what I, where I feel called to, to be in my faith. And, um, when I started doing this work, it really was a coming together of, you know, all the, all the aspects. And, and, and if, and it felt like really was complete and, um, and really joyful. And, 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 and since the beginning and to this day, I do, I do feel, especially when I'm in those, you know, really difficult places in, in the red light areas, in a rescue shelters, mm. um, where, you know, where there is suffering, but then I, I really do feel, um, God's presence also there, uh, supporting me and in the children and in the other people who are trying to help them, um, in the community and network support, um, around the world that is thinking and praying and donating and trying to, trying to end this. I feel God moving powerfully in those, in all of those places. Yeah. How did you go there in the first place? Like what, how did that story start for you? That was very unplanned, Eric, very <laughs> unplanned, at least by me. Um, I had a different career as a songwriter for film and TV. Oh, cool. And yeah, I was enjoying it. My kids were super tiny, like babies. And I was, um, you know, very happy with that. We lived in Cape Cod. My husband was an investment banker. Everything seemed really squared away and good. And then, um, I got one of my songs was in a, uh, a documentary film, which got put into the uh, Tribeca Film Festival in New York City. That's cool. So I went down. It was cool. <laughs> and I went down to the city thinking, this is it. My life's about to change. My career is about to take off because I was mostly writing songs for soap operas. And all of a sudden I'm in this feature film. And, um, you know, Emmy Rosam from Shameless was singing the song over the title credits. It felt like this really big, great opportunity. Yeah. And, um, it certainly was a life-changing opportunity, but not the way I planned. So I, um, I go to this film festival. I have a lot of activities around the film my songs in, and I have a free pass to go see any film that I want, but a super limited time frame. And when I looked at the catalog of, you know, the hundreds of films in the festival, there was exactly one film in my time frame, And it was called The Day My God Died. And it was a movie about child sex trafficking between Nepal wow. and India. But I will admit to you and your listeners that I literally said out loud, yeah, no, I'm not going to that one because, you know, what am I going to be able to do about it? It's going to be really depressing. I think I already know about that, all these excuses. And um, I just kept looking for more, you know, other films that I could go to see. But, you know, God did have a different plan, which was for me to go to that movie and do this. And there were no other, there were no other options, you know, and I wasn't going to waste a free ticket. Um, oh, so you ended also, up, you decided to go anyway. I just kind of felt like I had to go. 
You yeah. know, I just wasn't going to go home. And so like, I didn't see any other movies at this festival. I mean, it just felt lame <laughs> um, and wasteful. <laughs> yeah. So I, so I went and I mean, thank God I did because this movie truly changed my life. It showed, you know, this horrific situation that's occurring in that time wasn't well-known at all. I think now people are very familiar with the term human trafficking. I wasn't even familiar with that term before I went to that movie let alone to know this was happening, you know, millions of people and particularly the most vulnerable among us, poor young girls. Yeah. And thankfully that movie didn't just expose the horror of trafficking, but it showed all these courageous people, you know, from all walks of life who were putting their lives on the line to stop it. And some of those people were survivors who even after enduring this, you know, terrible abuse, uh, you know, betrayal by those they loved, and then many of them had AIDS or other STDs and they were stigmatized and blamed for what was done to them and rejected by their families. Even with all of that, that they were dealing with, they were going back into the brothels to rescue others. They were at the border stopping the cars and stopping this from happening right while it was happening, intercepting girls and their courage, as well as all these other people from you know all over the world and all different walks of life who were doing this. And I said, that is it. I'm turning my life around. Now I'm going to do this from now on for the rest of my life. And I'm going to um, find a way to be of service to this, whether it's, you know, just, just fundraising or whatever, it, I mean, raising awareness, whatever uh, small thing I can do, that is what I am I'm determined to do. So I went home and I emailed some of the organizations featured in that film. And one of them was this organization in Nepal called Mighty Nepal. And, um, you know, I know now how busy nonprofits are and you probably get all these emails like, I want to help, but I don't have any skills. <laughs> right. Um, you know, like, like but yeah, I got to do something, right? You, I mean, it sounds like you had that feeling of, I saw this and I'm not okay with this being happening in the world. What do I do? Very much so. Yeah. And, but from their perspective, you know, I, they could easily have said, you know, please send a check or whatever, but they didn't. And they, they said, you know, um, well, we do have two volunteers helping us in the United States and maybe you could, you know, connect with them and help them. Do you live anywhere near Boston? Oh, wow. And that was 45 minutes from my house. Whereas, you know, I think when people, when it's in other country, people are like, Oh, you live in America. You probably know Eric. Right. Right. <laughs> or I always think that like about other countries, you know, but I think that the fact that it was just 45 minutes away and they only had two volunteers and they were right there in Boston. And so I was able to go and, and learn from them and um, volunteer for a year with that organization. And then at the end of that year, I was invited to go to Nepal and meet survivors and meet the people that were working with them and stay at the shelter. And so I did that. And once again, just huge upheaval in my life and it just really deepened my, my conviction. And, um, and at that point, um, I asked what area would, you know, would you need help with what's working? Where can I serve you? And they said, please work on um, economic empowerment and jobs for the older girls. So that's where we started. And because I couldn't do that, you know, through the organization I was volunteering with at that point, I started her future coalition and that was in 2005. Wow. Gotcha. Okay. So that's a huge shift. Did you keep writing songs or do you, you still... I mean, I tried for a little bit, but it was, it was really a, 
very unsuccessful after that because you have to, that's one of those things going to kind of be all in if you're going to do that. Uh-huh. And, um, and so's fighting human trafficking and, and so's raising babies. And so between all of that, I, I definitely, yeah, that's, that soon kind of fell by the wayside. And yeah, that was like having three jobs. I get it. Uh, yeah. Interesting. Okay. So, so you started um, your organization, her future coalition, what you said you went to the first time you went to Nepal, like what did you see there that really kind of changed you? There were two things. Um, one of them was this mom who came, she, we were at the shelter one evening and this mother came and she was carrying a little Polaroid of her daughter who'd been missing for 11 days and was almost certainly, you know, trafficked to India and almost mm. certainly she wouldn't never see her again. Um, wow. And the look on her, you know, the sort of devastation on her face and the hollow, you know, the sorrow. And as a mother, that just really, really sh- hit home for me. There were also a lot of survivors who were rescued with babies. So there was these little tiny little babies and they were like, hello, you know, so, wow. you know, unbelievably poignant um, to see the love that these girls had for their babies, to understand how these children were used basically as chains to make sure that the mothers wouldn't run away. And they were encouraged mm. to have children um, as a way to, you know, keep them enslaved and keep them from trying to run away. Um, and to see, you know, that even after everything that had happened, the hope that these young women had, that they had for themselves, for their children, mm. was incredible. And every time, you know, there would sort of be a really hard moment then right after there'd be a really exultant moment. Um, you know, we went up into the village, villages where there'd been a lot of trafficking reports with, with the survivors and they were just going door to door and they put on a, you know, some community theater and they were telling their stories through, through, through community theater and through, you know, just talking to people and having the courage to share what had happened to them so that it wouldn't happen to these children in the village. And just to look at the children's faces and how they just, looked up with just such amazement and awe and sort of impressed by, you know, these survivors in their theater. And, and it was a very, very hopeful thing. And yet at the same time, also, you know, coming out of such a, such a hard and sad thing. And, and the whole trip was like that. It would be like something, you know, devastating and then something incredible. And like at one point um, the police brought this boy or young man who was a trafficker to the shelter so that, the survivor could confront could confront him, and it was very wow. obviously off book. Yeah, um, not you know not normal. But um, and I just saw her sort of starting to do that, and then you know obviously left them to it. But to to be able to you know sort of see her her righteous rage and her despair, like how could you do this to me? He'd come and he'd married her, pretended to marry her, and then taken her to India and sold her, and he would repeatedly do that to all these wow. girls. And so I was just you know sort of really upset by that. Um, and then I went out into the courtyard and there was a hundred children dancing and then, you know, as night fell on the shelter home and, and it was just like that the whole time. Wow. What a mix of emotions just up and down and, and all over the place. It was, it was incredible. And, and then just asking, you know, what, what can I do? And, and, um, being led in that direction to work on, um, vocational and employment options, I came home and just got right to it. Yeah. Where was God for you and all that? God was everywhere for me and all that. I couldn't have um, done that trip and faced all of that without 
my faith. Um, I, on, and, and I think um, I would have given up because it, it is really, it is hard stuff, right? And yeah. I was, you know, these young kids myself, one, one time on that same trip, it wasn't in Nepal, it was actually in Cambodia, um, which I was also visiting on that same trip. And um, one of the nonprofits I was had reached out to and said, you know, we want to take you to see some of our projects in the red light area. We're going to take you down there at night. And, um, you know, we went, we went there and there were just, the girls were so young. Um, and these guys were just laughing and smiling. Like it was this big, funny joke and like not seeing the despair on the faces of these very young girls. Some of them were, you know, not even into puberty yet. Um, and they were acting, the guys were acting like it was a date or something fun. Mm. And that, that, that was very jarring. Um, they couldn't even see yeah. you know, how they were just adding to the destruction and the despair of this person next to them. Um, and, you know, there was just, there were some pretty horrible scenes kind of um, unfolding in the bars, you know, quite openly. Um, and I felt I felt like I, I couldn't, you know, I wasn't sure if I could go on, you know, doing this. I was like, this is maybe just, you know, too hard. And, you know, I went back, I went back to my hotel room and, and I felt God's love just come around me and like a blanket and carry me through that night. And there've been many such nights you know things you see that you can't unsee things you hear that you wish you never heard and um and just practical stuff too logistical problems and fundraising and you know year after year trying to like come up with the money and um and, and keep going and 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 i i truly i know i could not have done it without god's help and without my faith it's been a huge factor yeah. Wow. I can only imagine that because it's, yeah, it is a sort of wild mix of, of just heartbreak and devastation and dissonance, right. Of like, that's not right. Or that's not, how can you be happy? And can't you see the, the destruction that you're causing? And then to see and be like, sense God's presence after that, like to go, okay, he knows he sees that. Right. And he understands that that's not only painful for them, but for me and he cares about you. That's right. Really he, care, he cares about them and, and he cares about me and, and everyone else that's there, you know, trying to help. Um, recently I had an amazing opportunity um, during COVID actually to co-write a book with one of the survivors that I've been working with. Her name is Anjali and she was trafficked from her village in Nepal at age 12 and um, trafficked to Calcutta, which is where I met her, and rescued by IJM and an incredible um, international organization that does a lot of rescue work. And then she got repatriated in Nepal and sent to this wonderful, wonderful home called Apple of God's Eyes and got uh, a tremendous amount of healing and love and support in that family environment. And now she's getting ready to go back to her village and um, open a school and a trafficking prevention program to stop this from happening to the next generation. Cause this is one of those villages where a very high percentage of people are either trafficked or put into a child marriage to prevent them from being trafficked. Like 50 wow. to 75% of young girls 
that's what happens to them. It's like everybody in the village has a sister or a daughter or a wife in the brothels of India. It's just become so normalized there. So she wants to turn all that around. And in the book, she, you know, she, she talks a lot about her Christian faith and how that's been such an important part of her healing. And, um, you know, people will sometimes, um, say dumb things, (laughs) things that, you know, I don't agree with that. She doesn't agree with like, well, it was, you know, must've been God's will for that to happen to you because it happened to you or, or just stuff like that. And that is, you know, just insensitive and not well thought out. And her, her thing is, you know, God did not will that to happen to me. God only wants good things for me and for everybody. It happened because of people's ignorance and people's lack of education and awareness and their brokenness and hurtingness. Um, yes, it happened, but the whole time God was working to pull me out. You know, God is working through all these people. There were so many people involved in the rescue and in her healing. Um, we talk about a lot, a lot of them in the book and, you know, they were being called to do this work and they were, they were acting and they were God's hands in the situations. God was always there in the situation. Um, yeah. And God is, is there in, in every, in every situation, but sometimes, you know, just through, through us, through the, through the children, through the women, God is in all those things. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. I love what you said there too, about, um, God was always working for, right. Like for, for me to get out for her to get out. Uh, I mean, I think it has, has huge biblical precedent too. I mean, the whole book of Hosea, right. Hosea, his wife guess goes into basically sexual slavery. Right. And he goes and buys her back, right. Brings her back. Um, and I guess maybe there's this element of defiance there on her part too, but there's still that idea of like just redemption that that's what God is all about in, and almost a much more tangible way, uh, here in the world. And I don't know, you know, I don't know if most of us like to like to think about that, right? Like it's, it's a, it's a tough reality of what's happening over there. Um, so how, how can how can people, I mean, obviously you mentioned earlier, like if we wanted to support you, we could, we could probably do that. I'm sure financially, but like what, how can people kind of raise their own awareness beyond just like hearing about uh, trafficking overseas? Cause it happens here. I mean, Denver, I don't know if you know this, but Denver is like the fourth biggest place for trafficking in the United States because we have interstates that go like this. And so they, they come and go in all different directions. And um, so it's not just an over there problem, but how, how can we, how can people like if we're, they're moved to kind of do something, you know, you start an organization, most of us aren't going to do that. How can they get involved? Mm-hmm. I think that there, there's a lot, a lot of different ways. And I think a great place to start is to educate yourself. Um, you know, it's definitely, necessary like for me it was necessary first steps to do a lot of research and when I felt Mm. called to work on it like let's not be going in you know unprepared and unarmed right and I think that we arm ourselves with some good awareness and um like there's a lot of wonderful resources available now um books and the the state department trafficking persons has a report that comes out every year which is a fantastic kind of overview of where this is happening all over the world and I think getting involved, you know, both, both locally and internationally, like why choose just one? Um, there, mm-hmm. there are some, you know, fantastic organizations in the United States doing this work and it really all, it really all interconnects. Um, and I think looking at 
like locally to a prevention. Um, the, you know, I think that kids coming out of foster care are super high, high risk groups. So, are, you know, are there things that we could do um, to, to, to target and to work with that group, you know, to prevent it from happening before it happens, you know, mentorship and support and fostering and education, all those things, like really, really working with those young people that are at the highest risk, you know, in our own communities. And then on an international scale, I think, um, yeah, doing the research, reading, getting on the internet, finding out what's going on and where, you know, where you feel like you can touch in on it and asking. Um, like for me, it was, it was about, I, I only knew how to start with the people that was in that film because that was where I found out about the issue. Yeah. Um, and I think asking, you know, where, where can we be of help? And I think if you have a community, if it's, whether it's a church, you know, a, some kind of community or network, I think a great thing to do would be to like engage together mm. around this and saying, you know, okay, you know, what can we as a church or what can we as a, a club, a book group, whatever it is, you know, do and kind of uh, to amplify our impact collectively. Um, maybe it's about, you know, getting behind um, efforts like Anjali's, you know, and, 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 and really not just sending money, but expertise resources yeah. you know we all have we all have a lot to give and like we not i didn't know exactly wh where i would be able to fit into all this when i started but i took one step and that lit the lit the way for the next one um and then it became clear what to do and many mistakes later here we are yeah right well that's how it all goes right there's always a, a ton of mistakes and a ton of things that you learn along the way what are some of the things that you've learned along the way hmm Ooh, I've learned to be less of a people pleaser. <laughs> yeah. Um, I feel like, you know, my desire to have everyone like and approve of me, um, just kind of my personality is just wasn't, wasn't a good leadership style. Um, and that um, I feel like you're actually uh, clear as kind as Brene Brown says. Yes. I love that. Um, yeah. And unclear is unkind. So like avoiding conflict, which was, you know, was kind of my way, um, has, has been very, you know, unsuccessful for me. And so I'm just learning to be a lot more direct. And, um, I think, yeah, have you ever heard that? Um, it's like one of the Stoics said at Marcus Aurelius, what stands in the way becomes the way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's why the book is the book that Anjali and I wrote. It's actually called Standing in the Way. And it's about, it's kind of a double entendre about, you know, the things that appeared to be so horrific, but they also became the way forward. Um, in her case, you know, the, the trafficking. And um, I've learned about that too, in, in, you know, maybe less dramatic ways, but in my work, the things that seemed like, you know, really disappointing setbacks, um, they become, you know, th that is the path. And it becomes the path forward. And so rather than getting, you know, incredibly, you know, distressed and stressed, you know, everything time things don't go your way, maybe you could see that as an opportunity to do things in a you know completely different way that you hadn't thought of. And I think, you know, creative thinking and um not sweating the small stuff because you can't miss work, right? Like it's just gonna be so many, yeah. there's gonna be so many setbacks and so many mistakes, and also so many successes and so many joyful miracles and it's all part of it. Um, so rather than, you know, I could choose to be like a stress case and Hey, I've done it. I've definitely 
been that person who chooses to be a, a stress case all the time about it. Like, Oh my God, girls are dying. And like, that's not, that's not helping anybody. It's, it, you know, calming down, being patient, taking a step back, waiting for God to work in a situation when, you know, if, if your efforts aren't bearing the fruit that you were hoping for, um, those are all the things that I've learned among, among many others. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I can imagine that it's, I mean, it really is a high pressure situation, right? Like it, it really matters the sooner you can, you can get somebody out of that situation or whatever it is. Uh, and being frustrated, not being able to do that, I'm sure. Right. And you're absolutely right. It's a high pressure situation and it is easy to sort of think like to, to get yourself, you know, very, very anxious about it. But at the same time, you know, because it's, because it's a critical and high pressure situation, you need cool nerves more than ever, right? Like getting yourself exhausted or, you know, your team frantic isn't, isn't a good long game, long game plan. And it is a long game. Um, You know, you, you need, you need kind of nerves of steel and you need to just be really like super relentlessly positive, which I kind of naturally am. So I'm lucky that way that that was kind of the spiritual gift I think I brought to it was my relentless positivity. Mm. Um, But yeah, you can't really afford because it is so critical and, and important and time sensitive, you can't afford then to waste time um, by waste, you know, wasted energy on stress or um, on self-recrimination or, or, you know, or people pleasing or any of it. You've got to like, just calmly, step-by-step moving forward. And also the other thing is too, like, I don't um, deceive myself that, you know, I, I alone am doing this work or responsible for it. You know, it's um, first of all, it's God's work and it's also a collaborative work um, with lots of other different people. And so I think controlling what, you know, staying focused on what I can control and what I can bring to it and leaving the rest, you know, in God's hands where it was anyway. Yeah. Right. We're keeping that in perspective is probably a big deal. Yeah. Critical. Yeah. You mentioned earlier that you've seen some miracles. Like tell, give me, give me a story or two about that. Like something that really kind of blew you away Mm. or a small one. Small is good too. I mean, there, like there are many, um, Anjali herself, you know, is a miracle. Like, um, the fact of what she has endured and yet being still being, you know, such an angel and having such wisdom and love and wanting to give back is, is an incredible miracle. But within my own personal story with her is, is a little miracle is that, um, my first met her when, um, just a couple weeks after she was rescued, um, at a rescue shelter in Calcutta where I was working and, um, we were able to, I was doing a two week therapeutic arts workshop there. And she and I got quite close during that time. She was kind of my right-hand woman that, during that whole project. Um, but then I went back to the United States and um, unfortunately, we, know, we were no longer working at that shelter and I no longer um, had a way to, to keep track of, of the girls there. And so I, lo- I lost touch with her. And then about three years later, three or four years later, a different partner organization that I was working with in Nepal was visiting my house for Thanksgiving. And we were just scrolling through pictures on an iPad and they were just saying, Oh, that's Shanti, that's Shambu. And then they said, that's Anjali. And I was like, wait, go back. Is that Anjali Tamang? It was her. Wow. She had gotten repatriated to Nepal and placed at Apple of God's eyes 
who I was also partnering with that I had no idea she was there. And wow. so I was able to be reunited with her and I've been able to, uh, I mean, she's really a, my daughter and I've, I've been able to um, just sponsor her and to develop, you know, really deep personal relationship. We've written this book together. Um, and there's just so many like that, like this, this one girl, Annika, she came to the shelter home. She and her mom were at a roadside hotel and they were being trafficked for sex and also washing dishes. She was about 10 and or 11, or 10 or 11. And she came to the shelter that we built and she didn't even talk and we didn't know, you know, is it, is it because of the trauma or does she have a speech disability or is she, you know, she only speaks a tribal language that none of us speak, that no one speaks at the shelter and maybe, maybe she'll start speaking, but it's just, you know, doesn't know, doesn't know um, Bengali. This was in India. Yeah. Um, so we didn't know. And it just seemed like one of like, a, it just was a really hard case, you know, really hard case. Like the trafficking had gone on, you know, almost her whole life. It was, it was very, very wow. bad case. And then a year later, I go back to the shelter. I literally did not recognize her. It was a different person. She's mm. talking, she's laughing. She's physically completely transformed and she's doing fine. You know, she's catching up in school and she's, you know, an, a happy, normal, wonderful middle schooler. That's wow. a miracle. That is yeah, and that's really all you need, right? Like that. But I was I was thinking while you're talking about how interesting it is about how physical, how the, how spiritual, emotional trauma. I guess it's, it's physical trauma too, but like how that trauma can can change you, um, like physically, right? Like you can tell people who are suffering with that versus, and then how different they can be when they're when they experience some healing and have an opportunity to thrive. For sure. Like, I think, you, you know, sort of like we have these metaphors like weighed down. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and sometimes you see kids who like, I don't know, kind of hunched over, like they're kind of bent over. They seem, you know, much smaller and just the little faces there, you know, there's just this uh, fear there, like kind of on their bodies, you know, very, very tight, um, fearful kind of stance. And um, I think that for, for trauma that has come through your body, such as rape and sexual violence, um, it is important too that in addition to you know talk therapies and and all that very important stuff, that there be some mind body work. You know mm -hmm. whether it's through yoga, through dance, um, you know even painting, anything that you can do with your whole body uh, to try to work through some of that trauma. Because I don't I don't know that you can just talk about it if it has come physically. I think some of it has to be healed. You know through those types of therapies as well. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think that's true. I think that's part of being holistic and I'm, I'm, I'm agreeing you know, on my tradition. We don't talk about that much. We sort of ignore the body because <laughs> you know, it's not spiritual. We don't need that. But, uh, but I think it is true. I think, I think we absolutely do. Do need that? Wow. Really interesting. Okay. Well, what do you think, where are you headed? Like what's, what's the next, uh, the next year, you know, carry for you and your ministry? Hmm. I think, um, well, I'm very excited about helping Anjali to start this school up in her village in Nepal and being part of that, um, being part of that project. Um, and for our programs in India, I think truthfully, we have a lot of remedial work to do because basically all of our kids lost a year of their education. 
Mm. Um, they weren't, you know, getting any kind of good quality online education. I know that's been a huge issue for kids here too. I was going to say my kids, I don't know. We'll see what, they, we'll see what next we'll year is like. Right? But you might as well. But would they have computers and all that stuff? Right. Yeah. Right. You know, cause like, what's, what did they gain from sitting in front of their computers? Well, nothing probably or very little. Right. And the kids in Nepal don't, you know, in India didn't, didn't really have computers. Some of them were getting instruction by mobile phone, um, wow. in the shelter homes, they were getting, you know, some assignments at, I just really think basically almost every single girl is going to need to re- repeat most of last year. So we are, we're really focusing in on that, making sure that we're going to do very few breaks and just have like an intensive year of remedial education, lots more tutoring, putting a lot of um, the computer training and things options too. that if this does happen again, or just to be prepared that there's more technology options for, um, for all of the girls. Yeah. And, um, we are excited to just see the leadership really growing of survivors and girls who've grown up in this program, beginning to take ownership and leadership within it and, and really move it forward in a different Mm. way. Yeah. That makes me wonder, like, is, is somebody bringing a COVID vaccine over there? Like who's, who's doing that? It's very hard to tell what's going on with India and COVID because I don't know, you know, the numbers, you know, how how accurate anything is. But they certainly, India in particular, has a really uh, very, very established and good, you know, relatively good healthcare system Mm, um, and far reaching. So I think they're more likely to have, you know, access to vaccines a lot sooner than Nepal. Nepal, so much of it is remote, mountainous. They don't have a strong infrastructure. Um, So I think that, you know, maybe much slower coming there. Yeah, interesting. Okay, well, that's something to keep in mind. Keep keep watch for. Wow. Okay, so helping helping kids. Well, um, Sarah, I really appreciate you being here and sharing a little bit of your story. The book again, "Standing in the Way: From Trafficking Victim to Human Rights Activist," and that's written by you and it's Anjali. How did she? How did you say your last name? Tam Tamanj. Tamal. Tamal. All right. Well, that's great, and it can be found on Amazon. It comes out soon, right? I think it'll be out by the time we publish this. January eleventh, Human Trafficking Awareness Day. Very good, and uh, and it's of course always as always linked at halfwaytherepodcast.com, my friends. You can get it there. Sarah, is there anything you want to leave us with? I just want to thank you for um, giving a voice to this, you know, difficult and sensitive issue, and to everyone listening for having the courage to talk about tough stuff um we need need more voices we need more more hands um if you feel called please reach out yeah 100 we uh we we can't just be okay with this in our world i think it might be the social justice issue of the next century so we we have to we have to work on it thanks for all you do sarah i appreciate that thanks for sharing your story thank you for having me 